This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Fed Life, a weekly roundup of news about federal pay and benefits, employment policy, and investing and retirement planning. Brought to you by WEPA. Here's your host, Tom Temin. Hello and welcome to the show. Whether it's the war in Ukraine, the war in Israel, the House Speaker race, or any one of a zillion controversial topics, everyone has an opinion. As a federal employee, can you express your opinions out loud and not get fired for it? I asked about this and a few other matters when I spoke with federal employment attorney John Mahoney. Well, they should not be engaging in political speech at work. That's the bottom line. That's the easy answer, because it does approach a hatchback violation if they are found to be engaging in partisan political activity while being paid by the United States to be an employee. Well, if it's, say, you know, this side is right or that side is right in a particular conflict, that's considered political, do you think? Depends on the context. Obviously, people can express their views on issues of national importance, for sure. But if it's labeled, you know, in a partisan way, that can get people in trouble. And it's certainly something to avoid, both in the office while at work and also on social media. If you're a federal employee, that is an area where feds are are meeting a lot of problems with disciplinary actions for statements made on social media pages. Yeah, and I guess extremist type of views or views that are anti one group or another, that could be taken as out of bounds also, I imagine. Correct. It's definitely an area that people need to be, you know, watchful of. And certainly, you know, they can face Hatch Act violations. They can face conduct on becoming a federal employee allegations that stem from social media posts, whether they be political or just critical of their supervisors, et cetera. So it's something that feds need to be aware of and and be careful not to get in the mix of. But they could be facing disciplinary action, separation or leave or even firing, I guess, if if, uh, they go too far. Sure. Now, the way it works, obviously, if we're talking about a tenured federal employee, a permanent career status federal employee, if they if their agency believes that they've engaged in some kind of misconduct, Typically, there is some type of investigation, whether it's an inspector general investigation, a management investigation. You know, some agencies have office OPRs, Office of Professional Responsibility, a lot of the law enforcement agencies do. So there's typically an investigation that the agencies will engage in. Traditionally, under the Privacy Act, they were supposed to come to the subject of uh, investigation to the greatest extent practicable. The statute still says that. But unfortunately, that that has been you know somewhat gutted by court decisions. So effectively, at this point, the state of the law is as long as the agencies eventually come to the subject and present the allegations to them and give them an opportunity to respond orally and in writing to any written proposed disciplinary action, that's what the due process requirement is. They have to be given written notice of the allegations, an opportunity to respond orally and in writing, and a written decision. And if the decision leads to a suspension of 15 calendar days or worse, demotion in grade or removal, most federal employees can file an appeal with the Merit System Protection Board. Short of 15 calendar days, they either have to file a grievance or an Office of Special Counsel complaint or an EEO complaint. Right. So the best thing is not to get into a situation like that in the first place, fair to say. Exactly. Yeah, definitely better to avoid problems than try to put your way out of the bag once you're in it. We're speaking with federal employment attorney John Mahoney of Washington. And suppose a furlough 
should happen as a result of a federal government lapse in funding, which people are worried about now between now and November 15th, uh, November 17th, when the current Mm -hmm. continuing resolution runs out. Any change in the rules for speech and posting if you're on furlough? Well, still not a good idea to engage in, you know, political speech if you're a federal employee, especially if you're publishing it on social media. It can be used, you know, even if it doesn't doesn't rise to the level of a Hatch Act violation, it could be considered conduct on becoming a federal employee. So it's definitely something to avoid. You know, obviously, a lot of, you know, federal employees generally are concerned about the potential shutdown. You know, we've had five major shutdowns since I've been doing this for a living. They can result in MSPB appeals over the furloughs if they're 30, you know, less than 30 days at length. That's not a very good thing to appeal. Ultimately, the chances of success are pretty limited there unless there's a proven prohibited personnel practice involved. So I wouldn't recommend federal employees file MSPB appeals over furloughs. Eventually, hopefully, if the budgets are ultimately passed and people go back to work, they should be able to get back pay for the furlough period that they were off on government shutdown. So, you know, eventually Congress will get their act together and and pay back pay to the people who have been furloughed. Obviously, the essential government employees are going to have to work through the shutdown if there is one and not get paid until ultimately a budget is passed. So it's a it's a difficult period for federal employees and they're sort of used as a pawn in the political struggles on the Hill. And it really does impact people's lives if they lose, you know, 30 days pay and they don't get it back for 90 days or thereafter. That's a lot of money. And if people engage in speech that's unbecoming during a furlough, perhaps it's because they're bored and they need work while they're not working. And so maybe go over what you can do for employment, alternative employment, while you're on furlough that will protect your federal position and that doesn't present a conflict of interest. What kinds of work can people do? Yeah, so people need to get you know outside employment authorization from their principal employing agency before they launch into, you know, outside work of any kind. So it does become difficult oftentimes, depending on what type of job the employee has, if it's somewhat sensitive or cleared or law enforcement in nature, agencies typically don't allow those people to have outside employment. If the agency is presented with the option of of the employee working outside employment, then that becomes a difficult question is what happens when the furlough is over and Congress gives people the back pay and they've earned money in the interim on the outside, do they have to pay back? Is it mitigated or or reduced by the amount of pay they earned in the private sector? So it gets complicated in terms of outside employment. Yeah, I mean, outside employment in your field, say you're an attorney or something for the Justice Department and you work for a law firm or something, that could be a problem. But what if you go to work for Home Depot just to do something on weekdays and they pay you by the hour? Yeah, generally the best approach is for the employee to go to their agency and seek authorization for the outside employment. I don't see a problem with someone working at Home Depot if they're, you know, a federal employee. But there are political issues involved with, you know, lobbying by outside corporations to the government and that could create conflicts of interest. So it's very important that prior to starting the outside employment position that the employee seek and obtain approval by by their federal agency to do that. Those approvals then are not blanket approvals for simply working outside the agency, but they 
are required specifically for each particular external position you might take? Yeah, that is the best approach. You don't want to accidentally fall into a situation where you're securing outside payment while you're supposed to be an employee of the federal government or, or potentially using government equipment or time or you know resources to aid the outside employment. So it gets a little tricky. The best approach is to bring it to your supervisors, the idea of the outside employment, and have it cleared by the ethics people within the agency before you start the job. And sometimes people are furloughed in their view for something other than a shutdown. What do you do if you're furloughed and you believe it was a form of retaliation or you're being discriminated against? Then what? Sure. Yeah, no, I've, I've handled cases like that. I represented I won't name the name of the group, but anyway, I, I represented a case before the court, the court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit on the furloughs last government shutdown. And the result is that unless the person can prove a prohibited personnel practice under 5 U.S.C. 2302B, generally furloughs are not particularly targeted at any one particular federal employees. They apply across the board to people who are non-essential. So it's a very hard case to prove that when, you know, the vast majority of federal employees are furloughed due to a shutdown, that this one particular employee was actually furloughed for a prohibited personnel practice reason. It's a very difficult case to win. Yeah, because you have to do that proof, and that's paperwork and time. I mean, how long does it take sometimes? it's These can be months-long processes. Yeah, an MSPB appeal from front to back through a hearing and a petition for review can take literally years. Yeah, wow. So you really have to have persistence and you want the job badly or it becomes a matter of maybe a sense of justice that makes people pursue so long? Yeah, certainly federal employees have a strong sense of justice. That's why they're in this business uh, of public service. So they do tend to want to die on the stake for uh, particular justice positions that they take on things. But you got to be smart. You know, you got to be cost effective and efficient in how you decide to handle prohibited personnel practice cases. Otherwise, they can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars and take years to litigate. And you have written that you've seen a rise in the hostile work environment harassment claims. Yeah. So ultimately, what I'm seeing, you know, since initially the Civil Rights Act of 1991 came into place where the government can be liable for compensatory damages in prohibited personnel practice cases. And also, you know, the issuance of the Farragher and Ellis decisions by the Supreme Court in the 90s. Pretty much everything that comes in the door here has some component of hostile work environment harassment. And it is something that I think the federal government, Office of Personnel Management, Office of Management and Budget, really needs to spend some time, obviously the EOC as well, on training federal employees better in terms of what is a hostile work environment, in terms of, you know, harassment, what is actionable harassment. And also, you know, teaching management not to engage in conduct that can be considered to be harassing. We're supposed to be all on the same team and working for the betterment of the American public. And so getting into these situations where people come to work and they feel like they're being harassed day to day, you know, that's going to lead to EEO complaints or MSCB appeals, and they can be quite costly and time-consuming, as I mentioned. It really, there really needs to be a focus, perhaps in the next administration, on teaching both management and employees you know, how to avoid hostile work environment harassment cases, how to mitigate them if they occur, and how to, how to recognize what, in fact, is actionable harassment as opposed to just inconvenience or disagreement among people. So it's a pretty serious issue. I mean, these cases can cost the government $300,000 or more in compensatory damages. They have an affirmative legal duty, does the agency, 
to stop harassment and correct the impact of it. That's their affirmative legal duty. So it's pretty important in the EOC and the, and the board since the passage of the Whistleblower Protection Enhancement Act have, have really started to show some teeth in terms of awarding big comp damages awards in these cases. So it's something that both sides of the V, as we say in the business, really need to focus on. Hopefully in the next administration, there'll be more of a targeted focus on hostile work environment training and uh, steps to avoid them and fix them if they occur. What's your theory as to why cases seem to be on the rise right now, though? Well, I think like the rest of the country, the federal government and federal workforce is, is pretty divided politically these days. And today we've got a very important vote in the Republican conference in the House to, to try to choose the next Speaker of the House. It's quite important that we try to resolve the Speaker of the House issue, because we do need to get back to work for the American people and, and solve the budget crisis so that we can avoid a government shutdown come November 17th. So there's a lot of political opinions on the Democratic side, on the Republican side, in terms of whose fault these things are. And so you see a lot of anger among federal employees, because ultimately, at the end of the day, they're the ones that are going to pay the price if the government shuts down come November 18th. John Mahoney is an attorney specializing in federal employment matters. We'll take a short break, and when we return, an update on a new proposed law aimed at reforming everyone's favorite topic, telework. You're listening to FedLife here on Federal News Network. I'm Tom Tammen. Welcome back to FedLife here on Federal News Network. I'm Tom Temin. Lawmakers are once again proposing changes to telework and remote work for federal employees. The newly introduced Senate bill, Telework Reform Act of 2023, would, among other things, set some new reporting requirements on the government's workplace arrangements. The bipartisan legislation deviates from the goals of the Show Up Act earlier this year. Federal News Network's reporter Drew Friedman discussed it with producer Eric White. So there's a lot in the Telework Reform Act, but uh, let's start with some of the basics. What would the impacts be for federal employees specifically? So what this bill would do generally is codify or put into law the definitions that OPM has currently for what telework and remote work mean for federal employees. And what that means in practice is that federal employees would have to report to the office at least twice per two-week pay period. Now, that's because the working definition of telework, as the Office of Personnel Management puts it, is that employees are expected to report to work at an agency work site on a regular and recurring basis each pay period. So by setting that into law, these lawmakers are trying to make things a little bit supposedly more consistent for federal employees and just put that into legal terms rather than just a current definition. And one other thing that this would do for federal employees, notably the Telework Reform Act, would require agencies and employees to renew their telework and remote work agreements every single year. So the idea would be, you know, you assess performance, assess how things are going and make the decision from there of, whether telework should be renewed for that given employee for another year. So setting some of these requirements, this is, you know, going to, if it was enacted, it would change things pretty significantly for federal employees. All right. And so what about the agencies themselves? What would be the requirements for them under the Telework Reform Act? 
There's definitely a lot of stuff in here, Eric, for what agencies would have to do specifically when it comes to telework and remote work. The bill has a bit of a focus on data and reporting. So agencies, for example, would have to report to Congress on different aspects of telework and remote work, its potential value, any expected cost savings, productivity outcomes, if there was an increase in remote work and telework. Now, this follows after a lot that we've seen in Congress uh, questioning about data of telework and remote work of federal employees. So the idea here is to just have that be a little bit more, again, consistent across agencies of what they're providing to Congress about how that would look. In addition to the report, that report to Congress, agencies would also have be required under the Telework Reform Act to identify different job classifications that would benefit from remote work opportunities. So this is looking at, you know, maybe trying to diversify what types of jobs make sense for telework and remote work. Of course, many federal employees do have to report in person just because that's what makes sense with their position. But this would make agencies require or require agencies to look at, you know, what would make sense for having remote work opportunities elsewhere. And that would, in a sense, the lawmakers are hoping also diversify the candidates that are coming into those positions. For example, geographically, you can have more people work from, you know, anywhere you want if if you have a remote work job. Interesting. And so what requirements on telework data were already out there? What did agencies have to provide Congress before this legislation and what did they do with it when they had it? Right. So there are already requirements on telework data and reporting that do exist. And again, the Telework Reform Act, this bill has just been introduced. So it's, you know, this is all just a proposal from lawmakers. It's it's from senators. It's from senators Lankford and Cinema. So if it was enacted, it would try to kind of scale up the amount of data and reporting requirements uh, that exist. But the ones that do already exist from the Office of Personnel Management they do a an annual data call, as they call it, to all these agencies who have to report to OPM on how many teleworking and remote working employees there are and other information on their telework and remote work programs. OPM then compiles that information and provides it to Congress. And this happens every single year since uh, the telework the telework act of 2010 was passed. But in those years that OPM has been sending these reports to Congress, you've seen some lawmakers not satisfied with the level of the level or detail of the data that is coming from different agencies. So, for example, in OPM's report, they note that a few agencies aren't able to provide information either due to the classified nature of their work or because accurate records of teleworking and remote working employees aren't available so that's caught the attention of a lot of members of Congress, particularly House Republicans who have called on agencies to provide a lot more detailed and nuanced approach to to data collection on their telework and remote work programs. We're speaking with Federal News Network reporter Drew Friedman about the Telework Reform Act. Now, the bill also focuses on recruitment of military spouses, something that should make it a little bit more popular. How would that aspect of the bill work if it was enacted? The one aspect of the bill that this does address is that under the Telework Reform Act, agencies would be able to appoint military spouses, spouses of law enforcement officers and veterans as well, to remote eligible federal jobs outside the competitive hiring process. So the idea is give agencies a little bit more flexibility and be able to bring in military spouses 
more easily to the federal workforce. This follows after, you know, there's a lot of efforts to bring more military spouses into the government. It's something that the Biden administration pushed on uh, agencies earlier this year to use a flexibility that already already actually exists for federal agencies. There's a military spouse hiring authority that in the same idea lets agencies forgo the traditional hiring procedures that they have for most positions and more easily or more flexibly hire military spouses. There's been some concern that that authority is being a little bit underused. So this idea here with the bill would be to specifically focus on potential remote opportunities for military spouses. And the lawmakers who introduced the bill say that it's being made because military spouses and military families generally have to move around a lot. So the the idea of remote work is very appealing to military spouses who may not be in the same place for more than a couple of years at a time. Gotcha. And now this issue has been kind of fermenting ever since we came out of the pandemic. Aside from this bill, what else has Congress been saying about federal employees teleworking? Well, Eric, the one thing that you did mention at the top that I can go into a little bit here is the Show Up Act. This is a bill that was introduced in the House in January and actually cleared the House at the end of the month uh, earlier this year. The idea there was the House lawmakers are uh, Uh, At least House Republicans are looking to return federal employees to pre-pandemic work arrangements and largely scale back the level of telework that we see currently for federal employees. Uh, Under that legislation, agencies would have the opportunity to expand telework, but only if they could prove or certify that it would have a positive effect on work performance. Now, the show up that show up act, it was also introduced in the Senate in May this year. And that bill is very different from this Telework Reform Act, which takes a little bit more middle of the road approach. The Telework Reform Act is also a bipartisan bill, whereas the Show Up Act is largely uh, only supported by Republicans. So that's where you see a little bit of the difference here in how Congress is trying to approach this. And the other thing that is notable to point out is that the House Oversight and Accountability Committee has been very laser focused on the idea of telework and remote work for federal employees. They've held a hearing just in September about uh, to question several agencies on their telework and remote work policy changes, how that's affecting productivity and everything of that nature. And they're looking to schedule another hearing in that in that area uh, coming up in the com- in the couple of weeks here. So there's you know still a lot of pressure, a lot of questions coming from Congress when it comes to telework and when it comes to the Telework Reform Act. This is, of course, one bill that was just introduced in the Senate. There's no House companion bill yet, but we'll just kind of have to see how things play out. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman speaking with producer Eric White. And that's it for this week's Fed Life. We'll be back next week with more on your professional and financial concerns. I'm Tom Temin. Thanks for listening to Fed Life here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. You can listen to this episode and any past episodes anytime at federalnewsnetwork.com or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Search FedLife.